As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. isn't it? It is Monday. Welcome to Monday. Welcome to Monday. It's been a beautiful day today, so we shouldn't complain too much. And I wanted to do an urgent question on the programme. About... Oh, it was so biffed, wasn't I know it? it was. Well, I'm going to use it now, because nothing's wasted. Nothing I've thought of is ever just chucked in the bin. I no, use it. No, I have noticed that over the last seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do an urgent question. I wanted to do an urgent question about daffodils. Because um, I have this theory that those, Jane's got a theory, everybody. Yeah, those one pound <laughs> bunch of daffodils. I want to know about the economics behind them. I want to know about where they're grown. I think some come from the Netherlands. I think some come from Cornwall. But it's like a, a thing right across British retail at this time of year is the one pound bunch of daffodils. And you get about seven or eight in a in a bunch for a quid. And I absolutely love them. I mean, I, I, I seriously mean that they pay quite a big part in maintaining my mental health over this can be quite a depressing time of year. I think they're colourful. I think they're perky. And I think they say winter will end. And I, so I'm never without daffodils. Yeah? Yeah, no, that's fine. But you said earlier... You thought it was environmentally a bad thing to do. Well, I don't think that we should be... I'm not sure that cut flowers are at the top end of oh, uh, the environmentally sensible things to be buying. And and it troubles me. Do you know what? Most things that you can buy whole handfuls of for a pound trouble me because I'm not sure how everybody gets paid. Well, that's what, one of yes, the reasons I didn't yeah. want to talk about them because I think they are a positive for me and I know that I'm not alone there in valuing the colour of those daffodils. So you've got the ground that they were planted in as yeah. the bulbs. They must be given all sorts of stuff yes. to keep so going. you've got yeah. the farmer yeah. and then you've got the people who cut them, the people yeah. who trim them, the people who package them. Maybe that's all one and the same person. The person who probably drives overnight to a supermarket, someone who unpacks them in the supermarket, someone who puts them out in the shelves and someone who's on the till, if you're lucky, because the supermarket that I would buy mine from doesn't have anybody on the tills anymore. They do not have till. You have to go and use I know. one of the We're unexpected being... items in the baggage yeah. area. And I feel like an unexpected item in my own baggage area quite often in the supermarket now. But anyway, so that's 10 people involved in the process mm. for a quid. Well, I think somebody out there will know about the economics of these daffodils. And then they'll get in touch and we'll be able to book them as a guest. Yeah, OK. So if you are that person, it's Jane and Fee at times.radio. Also agree with you on the self-checkout. Because apart from anything else, um, you almost always need to call for help, or I do, because I can't work it, or something goes wrong, or the barcode doesn't work. But also sometimes, Jane, I mean, not just the once, I've got home and thought I haven't paid for that. Not all of it, but there'll be something 
I think, oh, I'm not sure that went through. And I haven't deliberately shoplifted. It's not my kind of vibe. No. But sometimes uh, things just have gone in and I think, no, I'm not sure I have paid for that. So I don't know whether it really works out. And I always like having a bit of a chat with someone on the till. Can I just say that for for my urgent question, the idea that was biffed as well, was just there's a grey area in my head about what's allowed in music videos now and what's allowed in other forms of artistic expression. Because Sam Smith's got a video out. It's by no means the most explicit music video that you and I have ever seen in our lifetimes, which are long. Uh, some of Madonna's early videos are quite fruity. and uh, Fruity's a... I, I miss one. <laughs> um, thank you for using it. Yeah. Uh, but it's just... The, there are a couple of scenes in Sam Smith's music video that if, if younger children watch it, they do have questions about it, uh, which are just quite hard to explain. So I just wanted to do something about where the boundaries are in that. But But, you know... That got biffed as well, didn't it? it? So it's quite sweet, actually. We're both tryhards. I mean, we come in, we've got we've one got idea ideas. each. We've got ideas. We've put the idea to our, laughably referred to as our team. And, and they say no. They say, mm. they just look, oh, God bless them. Here come the old ladies with one of their ideas. <laughs> anyway, uh, interesting guest on the podcast today, American athlete Lauren Fleshman. And should we do the emails first before Lauren? What do you think? Why don't we do, you've got a very Good email there that I think probably warrants a bit of a chat afterwards. So shall I do just some slightly shorter ones that don't need a reply? It's not that they aren't as good. Uh, This one comes from Jan, uh, who says, you mentioned in a recent podcast episode that you weren't sure if taking a holiday when retired would have the same thrill as taking one when you're working. I'm here to say, yes, it does. After the past 13 years of retirement, I was a teacher and didn't officially retire as such. I just stopped I hope you told your class at 55 felt fabulous i've realized that the lows of life outside work either those related to illness relationships concerns over children being fed up with the world in general and politicians in particular or just general malaise mean that getting away on holiday still provides a much needed time to reset and no matter if it's short like jane's one week limit or longer like several months overseas or somewhere in between like a three-week road trip around Tasmania, go Jan, there still exists that delicious pleasure of stepping outside of your own life for a while. New experiences, new people, new thoughts, whether you're tripping around or sitting by a pool reading a book waiting for the buffet to open, all awaken something in us. Well, Jan, I'm delighted to hear that, and especially just that little... Uh, detail of waiting for the buffet to open Uh, because we were talking about this on our uh, departure lounge holiday slot today there is something about the breakfast buffet that delights all generations it's a thing of glorious wonder isn't it well i mean i could i could stay in it all day realistically i don't actually require another meal i mean in the sense that there's everything in the breakfast buffet if you're in quite a good hotel and do you find that on a monday you're slightly unambitious but by friday you've just loaded the plate All go. You've got a slice of melon, a smoked cheese, a glass of carver, and maybe just some packs of butter (laughs) just to eat. And a spread on anything. (laughs) Now, let's do Lauren now then. This is Lauren Fleshman, who was our guest this afternoon. She's the author of a book called Good for a Girl, My Life Running in a Man's World. Now, she had a whole lot of success, actually, as a distance runner. She was the American 5,000 metres champion twice, and she competed at three World Athletics Championships. She didn't make the Olympics. Um, Life contrived to make that impossible for her. She had injuries and other setbacks. So in a way, 
well, she'll talk about it in the interview, um, she's perhaps less celebrated than those uh, track athletes who make the Olympics. Um, but that doesn't mean she wasn't hugely talented because she absolutely was. Uh, but she also found out along the way that her body was sometimes playing tricks on her and that she felt that the female body was in a way just not quite taken seriously by the athletics establishment. So quite a lot to get into here. She also, by the way, is now a highly successful businesswoman. She invented something called a picky bar and uh, did tremendously well and sold that business relatively recently. And she's also an athletics coach as well. So we started our conversation by getting her to tell us about the sheer pleasure of running, the absolute joy it gave her as a young girl. Running is often the first thing we do as, as soon as we can or before we're even ready. It's natural. Um, and I just loved it. I loved being able to uh, beat all the boys in the neighborhood. And it's the foundational skill for so many schoolyard games. And I was hard to catch. So I loved that. But I also just loved the way it tuned me into my body. Um, it made me feel like an animal. The faster I ran, the less I had to think. My body would just take care of it until I got tired, of course. But I felt that it was um, something I was kind of born to do. And you mentioned beating boys. And the plain fact is that back then you could, you really could. It wasn't a problem. No, there, I mean, there's no sex-based performance differences prior to puberty. And I was um, a child of the 90s in the girl power revolution of you can do anything that the boys can do. And so I was surprised when that turned out to be uh, not totally true. Tell us a little bit about your family setup, because your mom and dad are very uh, significant and your sister, I think, is, is in the mix as well. Uh, your dad was hugely proud of you, but he was somebody with what I think you might call quite old-fashioned ideas about women and certainly about female athletes. Yeah, definitely. He was an example of um, a lot of men still today. I mean, studies show that men want independence and strong-willed daughters, but they don't value the same characteristics as highly in a partner. And um, and we just are still struggling with what to do with the empowered woman. So seeing that as a child during this time of history where it really did feel like everything was available to me as a young girl and a future woman, and then seeing modeled for me in my home um, that my dad really was the one that, you know, had control of the remote. He had the, the first serving and the last word. And that was confusing as a kid. And he watched sport. He absolutely devoured it. But actually, back, back then, there wasn't a great deal of women's sport to watch, was there? No, there really wasn't. The Olympics was the chance to get to see female athletes on display and not just their athletic prowess, but also their bodies and the aesthetic of female athletes um, and the feminization of female athletes on display. And that was really powerful for me just to see that there were professional sports bases that someone like me could grow into. But it was discouraging to see so little on day-to-day -day TV. Um, there's still a massive difference in the amount of women's sports coverage and men's sports coverage. When it's not an Olympics, at least in the U.S., it's about 5% for women. And that's pretty horrible considering 40% of the pro athletes are women. And we have a, just seriously a very long way to go. Um, we can get bamboozled into thinking women have equal coverage, but but it's a long way from that. Uh, tell us about your, your journey then to success, because you competed twice, as I said, at the World Athletics Championships. That is quite remarkable. But it came at a price, didn't it? it I mean, and those, those chances to compete at the Olympics, things didn't work out for you. And just how crushing was that? 
Oh, it was absolutely crushing. I've been, when I retired, the New York Times called me the fastest 5,000 meter runner in history not to make the Olympic Games. I kind of became something I was known for because it's so tough. We, in the US at least, we have um, one day where you perform, there's no committee that determines the team. You have to show up on the day of the Olympic trials at your best and finish top three on that day or it doesn't happen for you. You can be the American record holder, the world record holder, it doesn't matter. And so it's just an enormous amount of pressure on one day and hard to get all those things right. And my story talks about the main force that kept me from, I believe, making more teams, Olympic teams, et cetera, was being um, at war with my body, feeling that my body wasn't right, that I was too big to be the fastest distance runner. I needed to lose weight. And this is something that I examine in the book is this systemic pressure on developing females to change their body, erase their body, erase the parts of them that are female um, when it's not necessary to do so. And it's extremely harmful. In the setup that you were involved in, I, I gather that the boss would usually be a man and there would be an assistant coach who was usually a woman who was around mm -hmm. to help the female athletes and to presumably talk to them about periods. Yeah, that's the current setup in the US. Well, we from 50 years ago, before we had legislation requiring equal opportunities for women, uh, there were 90% of the coaches of women's athletes were women. And that was mostly club and intramural sport, not professional sport, obviously. And then once it became part of the NCAA and professionalizing, men wanted those jobs, they were higher paying jobs, and we still haven't earned our way back to half of those jobs as women. We're at 42%, we've been stuck there for many years. Um, and so the most common thing, 80% of coaches are men in the running space still, uh, is to have a female assistant who can talk to you about the sensitive issues and do the emotional labor. And the expectation is that we don't expect our male head coaches to be educated and informed on the basic female bodied experience, puberty, breast development, menstruation, all of that stuff. It, it further creates sort of a stigma around those things when the main coach in charge won't talk about those things or acts like they're icky or uncomfortable. Can we talk a little bit more about body image as well? Uh, because I think, uh, as you've already alluded to, the pressure that you felt to be less than yourself, to be a thinner version of yourself and imagining yourself to be stronger when you're thinner. I think probably as an older woman, we know that that's, that's not going to work. But also just seeing other athletes around you all the time with their bodies on display, it's quite problematic, isn't it? Why do women have to run in shorts? Oh, well, we run in these little tiny... Uh, underwear basically uh, if you there's some women that wear tighter fitting shorts and the occasional rare bird that wears a loose fitting short but the expectation is that we wear very tight fitting bathing suit bottoms and a crop top which puts our whole body on display and in a sport where there where women's bodies are constantly commented on and objectified um, and we're trained from a young age to be very concerned about what our bodies look like that puts a lot an extra element on female athletes when they're trying to just focus on competing and they're in the fishbowl and then there's the cameras and now they have to worry about what their butt looks like hanging out the back of their bun hugger little briefs so i think it's a um, it's rule coded into just about every sport that female athlete uniforms have less fabric and are tighter fitting and you can get disqualified for wearing other things there was a, a situation with i think norwegian um, volleyball that uh, wore shorts instead of a bikini in the um, beach volleyball olympics and they were fined and i mean that kind of thing is just absurd to me but why does that still exist laura i mean why why 
now we have wonderful voices like yours in sport, can't the change be quicker, sooner? Well, I mean, immediate, really. I mean, you would think so. We need more research about it. But oftentimes, women can be the greatest defenders of our own oppression. We have associated these tiny little kits with professionalism. We've been trained to think of them that way. And you will find some of the biggest defenders of those kits to be women. Um, It's similar to high heels or a lot of other things. Like I bet there were women who were defending their corsets and foot binding, right? Like these are things that they get ingrained into what our identities and what we think our value is. So we have some work to do on the inside and then we just have to, but then we can't just change the rules. I mean, really we just need people to like look at the data and see that it's creating unnecessary harm and mental gymnastics. We know for sure it creates a risk factor for eating disorders and eating disorders are the second deadliest mental health disorder in the world behind only opioid addiction. So we know that this is serious. It's worth changing rules so that women can can compete with that freedom, the same freedom their male peers do of not worrying about those things. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Off Air with Jane and Fee, and our guest is Lauren Fleshman, celebrated American distance runner and the author of Good for a Girl. Now, I reminded Lauren that she'd written a very successful letter. It often circulates on social media called A Letter to My Younger Self. And I asked her why it still seems to resonate with so many people after quite a few years. Well, it's the fundamental truth of the, of a female-bodied experience in puberty. And the, our sports systems that we have right now that we emphasize are elite, at their ages 13 to 22. There's a ton of emphasis on high school and co- college-age sports. Um, women were excluded from those actively for a long time. And then once we were allowed to do them, we were kind of put in the system the way it was. We had no control over shaping it in any way. Well, what a male body is doing between ages 13 and 22 is dramatically different than what a female body is doing during those years. And what all the rewards and incentives and the clever refrigerator magnet wisdom, you know, you get out what you put in, effort equals results. These things are based on a male experience. And because we don't recognize that a typical female-bodied experience looks more like improve for a few years, experience body changes, those aren't immediately performance enhancing. So we plateau for a little bit typically or even decline in performance temporarily. Once we adjust to all those new changes in our body, then we can rise again and our peak is in our late 20s and beyond. I mean, we really have our greatest years are waiting for us on the other side of puberty in our adult woman body. But because we don't talk about these changes in the woman body, they're stigmatized, they're silenced. Um, Girls feel like they're failing. They feel like 
changing a changing body means that they're going to that they no longer have what it takes. I mean, there's all these horrible myths that get passed around. Like coaches will say things like puberty is the one injury a girl can't come back from. And they look at like a girl body changing into a woman body as a career ender when really it's just this little tiny window of time on the way to a bigger story that if we just support girls changing bodies through that time and we normalize these changes, then they can get through to the other side healthy, still enjoying sport and in continual lifelong relationship with movement, which is good for their health. But we're losing massive numbers of girls who feel like their changing body is a failure. And then they either start to fight it with disordered eating or they leave or they carry a story with them for a lifetime that they did something wrong. They didn't have what it took. Uh, and that's the part that kills me the most is the stories that so many women carry about themselves. And what about the impact of pregnancy? There's some very interesting stuff in your book about sponsors and how they deal with pregnant athletes and possible the possibility of pregnancy in other stars. It's not something they look forward to is it particularly no I mean it's a uniquely female bodied experience right so when I signed uh, my contract with Nike there was no language around it and when I asked it's because like oh it's just one contract it's all the same boilerplate language just copied and pasted so the language was built around a male athlete experience in their body as an athlete and just copied and pasted like everything else has been to female athletes once we were allowed to participate um, but you know, one of the things that female bodies do sometimes is get pregnant. And especially when you overlap the peak athletic years with peak fertility years, like those things come to a head at some point and decisions need to be made. But the old policies of not supporting pregnancy, of suspending an athlete for getting pregnant, not paying them, but also demanding they continue to exclusively wear the kit, show up for appearances on demand. Um, th those were norms in the industry until very recently. Those things are, I mean, should be illegal, frankly. Um, but but now we have had some some big advocates in the sport who have done a really good job of shifting those things, like Allison Felix, Alicia Montano, and Kara Goucher, track athletes that have told their story on big stages and had uh, put pressure on the industry to change those things to provide at least some level of pregnancy support. But it's still all very confidential. Contracts are confidential. We don't really know women are being protected. And Lauren, along the way, have you found enough allies in your male counterparts or not really? Yeah, I think that the I think that men um, are excited to support their female peers. They just aren't given the information. And frankly, the women aren't either. And one of the biggest surprises of writing this book is how many people go, wow, I didn't even really know that that's what was happening to my body. Like their own real lived experience, they thought some something you know that they didn't know if they could really even believe their interpretation of events and so like how do we expect our male peers to show up and support we need consciousness raising on the whole of like what is a typical female athlete experience in their body through the sports system and then what forces are they facing societally that may be different from males and then what can we do about it together to make sport a place where everyone can thrive
I think one of my happiest sporting memories um, of all of my entire life, actually, would be England winning the Women's Euros last summer. Um, it felt mm. like such a moment for all of us who, as yet little girls, have played football and love football, but never dreamt of an occasion when they get over 90,000 people at Wembley cheering on, of all things, an England victory in a, in a final, because we haven't had much success um, of late. Um, but what, what is really interesting is that, and it's an unfortunate thing, is the, the prevalence of a particular injury amongst female footballers. I know it does happen to men as well, the anterior cruciate ligament injury. Mm-hmm. Um, now, why is that more common in women than men? And, and is it something that concerns you? Well, I'm not a, a doctor, so all I know is the research that I've read on it that may be outdated now. But um, you could have someone else as an expert on that. But what my understanding is there could be multiple factors. We have a different hip to ankle ratio, um, like angle. And so that just means that the way that our legs are hitting the ground, we're moving, the forces are moving through our body in a different way on our joints. So it could be that just our our physics of our movement create a different risk. Also, women are still required to play on turf way more than men. Um, and turf is notoriously a more dangerous place for ACL injuries. And even, even professional women are still relegated to turf fields um, that we would not do for men. So these are, these are things that like right. also contribute that we need to look at. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And you make very clear in the book that um, you're, you're certainly in favour of trans people participating in sport, but um, the clear central message of the book appears to me, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, that women and men, their physiologies are very different and they need to be treated differently. So how do you feel about the participation of trans women in women's sport? Well, I think that sport is not just split by sex. And there's this myth that we've created two categories based on sex. We haven't. We've created two categories based on gender, historically. Women's sport is a gender-affirming space for cisgender women. We go there to be in community with other women. We go there for a lot of reasons that are way more than just who's going to win this race, right? Most people aren't there to win the race. They're there for the community and stuff like that. And so trans people have a right to those spaces to participate in sport in gender-affirming ways. If we decide to rearrange sport fundamentally to actually be sex-based categories, then that's a different conversation. But that's not actually the way sport is separated right now. It is an overlap of sex and gender into two categories. And and so it's I think that we just it's not it's not humane or correct to exclude trans people from those spaces. And people don't think about how much you're missing out on if you exclude trans people from those spaces. You're missing out on teammates, you know, friend friendships and and lifelong experiences. And anyone who's played in sport knows that every one of your teammates, every one of your competitors that you become close with impacts your life. And I think we should be in the business of including as many people as possible, not excluding. Can I ask you really briefly, Lauren, if you don't mind, whether you believe, um, as Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky does, that Russian and Belarusian athletes should not be allowed to compete in the Paris Games? I think this is really tricky. Um, I would like to say that it's a clean thing. Yeah, we shouldn't let any country who's behaving in this way um, have the the stage, the impact of the stage that the Olympics provides. But I think the UK and the US could look back in our history of the last 200 years and see plenty of times when we probably shouldn't have been allowed to participate in the games based on our colonialism or, or ac actions and um, 
in various parts of the world that maybe weren't on the right side of history. And so I just think that it's easy to point fingers. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep them out of the games, but I think that it, it is something we need to think about because we need to be able to apply it um, broadly if we're gonna be doing that. And then who, who are the ones that get to decide which country's behavior is acceptable or not? Lauren Fleshman, who was our guest this afternoon, and a very eloquent one as well. And it is worth noting that as well as all of the running that she's done and the writing about it and the encouragement of other athletes, she also set up this business making what she called Piggy Bars. That was the brand name for well, it them. it was because her partner had, Jessie, had, who's a triathlete, had a kind of nervy tummy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and not always a very healthy relationship with food. So the picky bars had nut butter and proteins in them and stuff like that. And she sold the company for $12 million. She just started it in her kitchen. There's a lot of bite in a bar, isn't there? Just Do you ever just think, oh, I say to my kids all the time, can't you just invent an app? What are you doing? And they're just gawping at somebody else's genius. They've still got time. No, they could do that. I mean, they're moving on. I'm not, as I keep saying, my child is 20 on Sunday. So my teenage years, my parenting of teenagers, I've only got six more nights of nervy tension before I can forget the whole business. Okay, well, She's on her own. I'll check in with you the same time next week and see how those first couple of nights have gone. <laughs> right, we've got a really brilliant email here from Tina in Germany. It says, from Germany with love. And we'll accept that as a beautiful sign-off. Take it away, lady. Well, what happened last week was we had a very interesting email from a woman whose husband was a member of, and he's a lovely bloke and she absolutely loves him, but he's a member of a WhatsApp group with other men and they exchange stuff, um, not all of which is terribly respectful towards women, porn videos and sexist jokes and all the rest of it. And he's aware of it because he's told her, but he hasn't left the group and she's very aware that these are his friends and she loves him and she just wanted to offload the whole thing really uh, anyway tina says my husband and i used to live in australia uh, my husband went out with a few mates to celebrate a birthday back in oz and after a few drinks the conversation turned to women and wives the lack of fulfilling sex lives and all the other ways in which the wives and girlfriends weren't meeting expectations my husband felt uncomfortable with this development of wife bashing and the sexist undertones and did eventually speak up when his mate mentioned that women were biologically different to men so some things like caring for people were just easier for women women he said were not cut out for management roles and decision making because of the problematic uterus present in their bodies my husband told him this was an utter load of crap and then left i wish the story ended there but unfortunately the mate turned up on our doorstep the next day and yelled and swore at my husband asking him to admit that women just are different and that they're therefore less capable of certain things. The anger involved in this surprised me the most. Why was he so adamant and so angry that my husband wouldn't fall in line? It still astounds me to this day that a man in his 40s in this day and age can have such a sexist attitude and be, frankly, stupid. But a shout-out to my husband for speaking up. We've got two daughters and my husband wouldn't take any talk, be it online or in person, objectifying or degrading women. And he'd be just the same if we didn't have daughters. Uh, from Germany with love, as Fee's already said, from Tina. Uh, thank you for that, Tina, and well done to your husband. Um, but I still think what he did was commendable, but it was very intriguing that you got that reaction. Now, I'm not going to say 
that's because it was in Australia. But I suppose we must take note of the fact that happened to occur in Australia. Yeah, uh, There's a little line that I agree with Tina about wholeheartedly as well, which is her saying, I don't think anything will change if men don't change the way they talk about women. And that's what started off the whole conversation, wasn't it? It's how men talk about women in the company of other men that I think we're starting to know so much more about. about. Yeah. And that's the bit that has to change because there is a different conversation by the time they know a woman's watching or a woman's listening or a woman's in the room. So it's how men talk to men that seems to be incredibly, still incredibly problematic, mm. even when on the surface they seem like really nice guys. So do, do you think men good. would be shocked if they were if they knew how women talked about them? But I have genuinely, Jane, never been in a conversation with my lovely lady friends where we've talked in a very crude way about men. I mean, there has been, you know, a fair bit of, oh, you know, he's not doing this and he's not pulling his weight there and all that kind mm. of stuff. But has we haven't, there? yeah, I'm there astounded. has sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there has been. That's just being honest. But there's never been a derogatory, degrading conversation. And I don't think I've ever heard a woman, you know, specifically say uh, he's just not capable of doing anything because he's got a problematic penis. So yeah. problematic uteri, uh, which is uh, what uh, Tina described, mm. the man is saying. Yeah. Incidentally, that's the wedding band that nobody ever booked. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's different, isn't it? To just saying, I'm having a bit of a hard time because you won't load the washing machine. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. It is definitely. Um, I think it's very interesting because we'll never know what men talk about when there are no women there. And they won't really know what we talk about. But if you are a man, I mean, it's unlikely, but if you are a man and you're listening. Um, well, maybe somebody could invite us to infiltrate a male group. And yeah. yep, yes, you can. What would, what would your nom de plume be? I think the trouble with us is our height would slightly give us away. <laughs> I'm talking just about a WhatsApp group. Oh, I see. Not actually turning up in person. <laughs> I think. I think our height and and our I think our physique might give us away. Jane. Nothing wrong with my physique, love. <laughs> well, you're working on yours because you're going skiing, aren't you? So you're trying to. It's not bulk going up. terribly well. No, no. Well, I'm, I'm, you say that. I'm sure it's no. fine. And uh, this is an anonymous one. Can I just uh, as as an ending because it's it's really lovely actually. Uh, you say very kind things at, at the top, so thank you, anonymous. I'm usually a bit slow in catching up with the podcast, but I have just listened to the discussion about the transgender prisoner Isla Bryson in all these discussions i always think that what we're missing are the voices of the trans people themselves my youngest is beginning to socially transition at the age of 15 becoming more feminine in their appearance they've talked about wanting to be a girl since they were seven they are the most gentle kind and unthreatening person you can imagine they experience harassment and bullying from boys at their school on an almost daily basis the idea that my baby could be seen as a threat to anyone breaks my heart but i feel this perspective is lost in the debate and Jane and I would both agree with that and actually going right back to the conversation that started off this podcast uh, we and our team are in agreement uh, that we would like to hear on the program because mm. we have got a platform and an opportunity exactly those kind of voices because by their very nature they, I think, can sometimes self-exclude themselves from the debate because it's a very difficult process to be transitioning and to 
have those feelings and those thoughts when you're young? Why on earth would you want to put your hand up and be part of this incredibly loud, very aggressive, rather violent discussion that can be going on at the moment? So yeah. we will be making an effort to hear exactly those kind of stories. We will, and I, we both feel very passionately that we want it to be a safe space for all comers, for everyone to be able to express an opinion and share their own experiences, because... Uh, Fee's right. It it doesn't need to be vile. It doesn't. It shouldn't be horrible. And um, we're all in this together. We're all yeah. And we're on a very steep learning curve at the moment. Yes. Yeah, we That's are. That's where we are. Okay. Jane and Fee at Times Radio. We can't talk about Happy Valley because Fee hasn't seen this penultimate. No, episode. but I'm going to go home and watch it tonight, and no. then we'll be able to discuss it tomorrow. Neil. I'm trying Neil. to do it. <laughs> Neil. <laughs> I'm yes. worried for his vocal cords. I worry for his and get your haircut, Neil. <laughs> right, that's tomorrow. Uh, oh, and our guest on the program is very interesting, Sarah Polly, the director of Women Talking, which is an Oscar-nominated film. So that's tomorrow. Lovely. Have a very good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good night. <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.